0: Oh <music> To welcome all of you to part two of Sticks and Stones. Um, As the video you just watched sort of shared, uh, the title of this series really is an homage to a phrase that maybe you had shared with you by your parents when you were a kid, or maybe you went along and shared the good news with your children as a parent later in life. It's that phrase that we've all probably heard: Sticks and Stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And this particular phrase makes a lot of logical sense. I mean, if you throw a stone at someone or hit them with a stick, you know it's going to hurt. But a word, I mean, it's just air passing through the vocal cords and coming out of the mouth. I mean, how much should that hurt? So this phrase makes logical sense, but it makes no sense at all when it comes to real life experience. In fact, If I had you think about it long enough, or maybe it wouldn't take long at all, you could think back to something someone said to you, whether good or bad, that made a huge difference in your life. It might have been years and years ago, and yet that that thing, those words, that sentence that someone said to you changed the way or influenced the way you look at yourself Or influence the way maybe even you looked at life. And not only does life experience tell us that this particular phrase isn't true. A thousand years before Jesus or so, there was one of the wisest men who ever lived. His name was Solomon. He was one of the kings of Israel. And he also wrote part of the Bible by God's inspiration. And in the book of Proverbs, he writes a phrase that is contradictory to the one we all share With people, it goes like this. The tongue, the words we say, have the power of life and death. That our words have power. And the things that we say to people can give them life. That is, it can build them up. It can encourage them. Our words can inspire people to do great things. And on the flip side, our words have the power of death. That is, it can tear down discourage, and hurt people. Now, the interesting thing is this. These powerful things called words are so easily accessible by us. It just takes a moment to let one of those words or one of those phrases that we wish we could have back out of our mouths. That could have influence and possible damage in a person's life for a really long time. And that's why, the power of words, that's why this is so important for us as Christians and as people to talk about how to use our words and what to use them best for. On July 4th in 2012, um, there were tens of thousands of people gathering around San Diego Bay in California. It was the 4th of July and they were going to have a big fireworks show happening right there on San Diego Bay. For weeks leading up to the show, it was being pubbed as the biggest and best San Diego fireworks show ever. And it certainly was slated to be that. The fireworks cost about $150,000. It was going to last about 20 minutes or so and it was choreographed. So like if you've ever been to Disney World or Universal, it wasn't just fireworks in the air. They were choreographed to music. There was a computer running all of it, sending the right firework at just the right time. And just a few minutes before the show was to begin, one of the computer engineers sent out what was the regular test signal just to make sure that everything was working right. Well, as soon as he sent out the test... Immediately, he wished that there was a pause button because there was some sort of glitch in the system. And when he pressed the test button or whatever it was that he pressed, what happened is it set off all $150,000 worth of fireworks to go off at the very same time. 20 minutes worth of fireworks condensed to 15 seconds is exactly what happened. I have a a picture that someone took here, okay? So (laughs) there was three of these barges out in the bay, and they all looked like flamethrowers throwing fire into the air for 15 seconds. Now, (laughs) was this memorable? Yes, I'm talking about it nine years later, okay? It's something people remembered, But it's not what they were expecting. And in many ways, because it only lasted 15 seconds, tens of thousands of people went home disappointed. Now, what does this have to do with words and this series? Well, as you know, fireworks are often associated and a part of Fourth of July almost all the time. Verbal fireworks are a part of almost every close relationship that you have. That in big ways or in small ways, verbal fireworks can be thrown at people that we are close to. And I I want you to know that if that happens in your relationship, you're you're not alone. The reason why that happens is quite obvious. There's going to be conflict in every close relationship. There's no relationship that you have that's close that there's not going to be at some point some conflict in. That could be with your spouse, that's probably the one that most of us are thinking about the most, it, but it could be with a close friend. Um, it could be with a relative, it could be with parents, it could be with kids, it could be with a teammate or a coworker, it could be with a neighbor little bit secret. Um, There even could be conflict with a close relationship at church that can happen with Christians. And the interesting thing is, and I just want you to be aware of it, that the closer you are to someone, that is, the more you're around them, the more that conflict will probably arise. And there's a, there's a very simple reason for that, why there's conflict in every relationship, is because every relationship is made up of two people that are the same. They both have sin. Every human relationship this side of heaven and post-Garden of Eden is made up of two people that have sinned. People who struggle with selfishness and self-centeredness and the need to be right and anger and fear and worry and frustration and anxiety. Every relationship are made up with people who struggle with these things. And so what's going to happen is there's going to be conflict. Now, on the one hand, I say this because I want you to, in some ways, feel like you're not alone if your marriage or relationship with your parents has conflict in it, okay? It's going to be that way at times. On the flip side, I also want you to be aware that we should never excuse that or think that it's good or okay. I mean, conflict is always the result of sin, and so our goal, hopefully, is to minimize the amount of conflict that there is in our marriages, that there is in our homes, that there is at work or wherever it might be. Conflict's not a good thing. But it is inevitable. And so when Scripture as a whole speaks about conflict and arguments and disagreements, it doesn't just give the encouragement, stop it, don't do it. Scripture also recognizes that it's going to happen, and so it gives us a plan on how to get through it. Like I said before, when it comes to the 4th of July in San Diego, that computer tech guy probably wanted nothing more than to be able to have some sort of a pause button before all the fireworks went off. That's what we're doing today. Because at some point in the near future, you're going to be tempted to launch a firework at someone that you love, a verbal firework at them, a verbal bomb, okay? And we have the advantage that, that computer tech didn't if we only stop to remember. It's our first villain today. My encouragement, when you feel that conflict happening and that argument and disagreement coming, before launching that word, before saying it, before letting it out of your mouth, before letting that flamethrower go, press pause. Stop. Don't say anything. Think. Now, the rest of our message today as we look at Scripture is going to then give us direction as to what to do and what to think about when we press pause. Last week, uh, Pastor Matt introduced us to a letter written by a first-century Christian named James. Um, He was Jesus' half-brother. His parents were Mary and Joseph. And he also happened to be one of the primary leaders of the Christian church in Jerusalem. And in the letter that he wrote, uh, uniquely titled, or creatively titled, James, um, in the first couple verses, it tells us who he wrote to. Um, he wrote to Jewish Christians scattered around the Roman Empire. And one of the things you may not know about Christians in the first century is that that church, that group of Christians, they had a lot of arguing and fighting going on. In fact, if you read through the book of Acts, a lot of it are re- records of Them trying to figure out disputes amongst Christians. They gathered meetings and councils to try to figure out and to to solve these arguments that Christians were having. Why were there so many arguments? Well, let me tell you. It was a hard thing to be a Jewish Christian. And I don't know if we recognize this enough. Here's what I mean. So these Jews grew up with a whole bunch of set of worship laws. Sometimes we call them ceremonial laws. And they were told what sacrifices that they were supposed to do, that is animal sacrifices, what festivals to follow, certain foods not to eat, certain surgeries that the the men had to do, and on and on, how to be ceremonially clean. And all of these laws, all of these directions, were meant with one primary purpose. The ceremonial laws were intended to point people ahead to a savior And their great need for that Savior to come. So, after Jesus died and he rose again, the Bible tells us that Jesus fulfilled all of those ceremonial laws. We don't have to follow those sacrifices anymore. We don't have to do the surgeries. We can eat whatever we want, we don't need to follow them anymore. But has there ever been something at church that you grew up with that was taken away? How did that feel? Did you always enjoy it? I mean, that would never happen at North Cross, okay? Um, Did you always enjoy that transition? Just imagine if the very heart of what you thought was your faith was changed and the holidays were different. That is, the celebrations and the laws were different. This is what the Jewish Christians were struggling with. And there were two extremes in the early Christian church. On the one hand, you had a group of people that they held on to the religious laws that were no longer required, They could not give up the things that they did as a child or as a young adult and they continued to require them of people even though God did not require them anymore. This is what part of the arguing was about that we read about in the book of Acts. On the very other side of the pendulum, we had people that they disregarded all the laws because, well, Jesus set us free. He forgave them all. It doesn't matter what we do, okay? And that wasn't right either. In fact... The entire letter of James, the central theme, is James explaining the relationship of faith and works, because there was a group of people that felt like works didn't matter anymore because Jesus died for them. Now, I don't want to leave you wondering about the resolution to that whole thing, so let me give you how I explain James' central teaching in that letter. Here's how I say it. James is telling us that you are saved by faith alone. That is, there's nothing you can do, no work, no activity you can do that is going to either help your sins be forgiven or make Jesus love you more, okay? Because it is all by faith and through what Jesus did. You are saved by faith alone, but James is also telling us that faith will never be alone. Just like a tree that's alive and thriving will have fruit, and if there is no fruit, you're wondering about the health of the tree. A dead tree produces no fruit. A person who has no faith will have no fruits of faith, but those who are alive will not be perfect, But there will be evidences of faith because faith will never be alone. That's the point James was trying to get across. But remember the audience, people who had been arguing about a lot of things biblically, a lot of things about God and about faith. And so there's these three verses in James chapter 1 where he gives us a game plan for what to do when you press pause and before you throw out that verbal firecracker, it's someone that you're in relationship with. James chapter 1, beginning with verse 19. My dear brothers and sisters, Jewish Christians scattered across the Roman Empire, take note of this in the Greek. Listen up. Everyone, everyone, doesn't matter what side of the argument it's on, doesn't matter you know, what your background is, everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak. Quick to listen and slow to speak. When you press pause before throwing out the verbal firework, that's the first thing James tells us to do. It's our second fill-in for today. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. In fact, that's so hard to do that I'm going to have you say it with me so that it helps you remember, okay? Here we go. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. That is not the normal demeanor when we're in a disagreement or in an argument because we have all this stuff pent up in our hearts and pent up in our minds and pent up in our mouths that we want to get out. And you will know I am right if you just let me share why I am right, okay? I just need to speak. And James is saying, no, you don't. Be slow to speak and be quick to listen. Now, for some of us, when you get into a disagreement or you get into an argument, um, maybe words don't come out quickly because you're wired not to speak. But let me tell you this listening and not talking are not necessarily the same thing. Some of you don't speak at the beginning of an argument, not because you're listening, but because you're shutting down. And you're so polarized in how you view things that it's not even worth talking in your mind. And you just shut down. Being slow to speak doesn't mean that you are listening. So how do you define what listening is? Well, listening happens when you begin to take the focus off of yourself and your agenda and how you feel about the situation. And for that moment or for that five minutes or whatever, your heart cares more about where that person is coming from and how they're processing things and truly trying to understand what they're thinking. Or to put it this way, listening allows you to love and understand the other person. Listening allows you to show love because you're more about hearing their perspective and their viewpoint than blabbering on about your own flamethrowers, okay? (laughs) And to help you through that listening to be able to better understand why they did what they did. Most of the time, most of the time, not all the time, most of the time, the person you're in conflict with, the thing they did or the way they think makes perfect sense to them. And they think it's good. But if we'd only understand their perspective, maybe that would help us better know how to speak. You see, everyone has a story. Are we patient enough to learn and understand what it is. There's this phrase that I think is really helpful for us because we so often view things only through our own lens, our own perspective. But understand this when it comes to to people who get really um, loud and hurtful in arguments, that most of the time, this is true, that hurt people hurt people. Hurt people lash out. Hurt people aren't patient. Hurt people say things in a way that is not helpful or productive. Have we had a chance to listen where they're coming from? You know that person at work that just seems to be disagreeable all the time? Never seems to be kind, always seems to be down. Do you know what might have happened in their childhood that would have caused them to possibly be that way? And it's not an excuse. They still need to act properly at work. But it might lessen a little bit of the angst and the anger knowing what they're struggling with. Or that person that just never seems to get stuff done. might be a child. (laughs) Do we understand what they're dealing with emotionally or how they're processing things or what hardship or heartache just happened in their lives? Because it's usually hurt people that will hurt people. Parents, kids, at this point, you can put your fingers in your ears for a moment. I I think our parenting would be better, and I'm talking to myself here right now, if even as an authority figure, which parents are, kids are supposed to listen to their parents But what if, parents, we stopped to listen a little more to where our kids are coming from? And the direction might still be the same at the end of the day, but can we love and understand them better and in that way even parent them better if we stopped to listen, even to our kids? Sometimes the best way to get at that is to ask some questions. So this is really practical, but thought it might help you. A couple questions that you could even ask if You're trying to better understand. Can can you help me better understand what you meant by? Can you help me better understand the situation? (laughs) I'm really wanting to understand where you're coming from. Can you help me better understand? It's a good question to ask that you're able to be slow to speak and quick to listen. Or maybe another way, can you explain what you were thinking when... I'm sure you have a good reason for what you did or at least partial good reason... Help me understand what you're thinking. Help me get you, get myself inside of your brain right now. What were you thinking when? Be quick to listen and slow to speak. Let's go back to James. We'll repeat verse 19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note, listen up. Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak. And slow to become angry. Now, this is a different encouragement, but the interesting thing is it's also a byproduct of the first two. I kind of alluded to that earlier. If we're quick to listen and slow to speak, guess what also often happens? We're often slower to get angry because we understand a little bit more. We may not agree, okay? Agreement and understanding are two different things. But we'll become a little more slow to get angry because, and this is why anger is bad. Human anger in an argument in a disagreement. How many of us react with anger as the primary sort of emotion in a disagreement, in an argument? Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. That's the dumb moment of the the sermon. When we're angry at people and we're not thinking straight, it's not going to produce the righteousness, the, the God-pleasing actions, the God-pleasing words, the, the God-pleasing outcomes that God wants in that disagreement and really in anything, right? And with this last part, what James is asking us to do in the middle of a disagreement is to think about the bigger picture. And he's asking us to think about what is it we want to accomplish in this disagreement. Or to say it another way, what's the goal of the argument? Let me ask you this personally. You don't have to share anything. But as you look back on most of your arguments that are in the heat of the moment, how would you identify what your goal is? Last night, uh, we had uh, a lady that I know well, and she blurted out... uh, crush them. (laughs) I'm like, whoa. (laughs) And talk to them afterwards. They're doing well in their relationship and everything, but uh, do you ever feel that way? I'll say it a little bit nicer. In most arguments for most people, the goal tends to be this, to win it. I want them to see why I'm right and they're not. I want them to see why my way is the right way and theirs is not. And even if it's not that, maybe you want to win something from them. You want to win an apology. (laughs) So you keep arguing. You want to win some sort of payback. You want to win their sympathy. And so you sulk and say nothing. That's not the right slow to speak either until you win that attention that you were looking for. Doesn't work very well, does it? The thing with the goal of winning is that it's so self-centered. I was trying to think of a way to sort of illustrate this, and the only thing I could think of was in a way I screwed up this past summer. So... um, Carrie and I were looking for something fun to do, something that would give us some exercise, and so we decided to go and play some pickleball. And if you're not familiar with pickleball, it's like tennis for people that don't want to run a lot, or it's ping pong for people that want to run a little bit, okay? Anyway, you hit a ball back and forth with a wooden paddle, is at the end of the day the game. And... I went into this thinking that it was going to be this great thing for us, maybe something we do long into old age. And I'm still hoping that it might be, but not for a while, I don't think. Anyway, our relationship, let's put it this way, wasn't closer after we were done with pickleball that night. And I think there's still some... I would say discussion to be had as to exactly why that happened, maybe a little bit of disagreement around that. But at the end of the day, I will admit and confess to this, that I tend to, with any sort of game or sport, have the desire to win. And so that may or may not have come across a little bit. Carrie may or may not have liked that. It may or may not, well, it was not good for our relationship that night. (laughs) Just think about it. What would have happened if... My goal was different going into pickleball? What if my goal was just simply to have fun? What kind of goal is that with sports? But anyway, no. (laughs) She has to live with me, so I feel bad for her. What if the goal was just to have fun? Do you know how much that would have changed the way that I would have acted, the way that I would have reacted, the things I would have said? Because your goal going into something changes the way you act. The same exact thing is true of an argument. If you go into the argument with a selfish goal of proving your point, being right, or winning, which we're all tempted to, in fact, almost all the time we're tempted to do that, if we would just stop, press pause, be slow to speak and quick to listen, and change our goal, it would have amazing effects on not only that argument, but your entire relationship. So what is the goal? Jesus kind of shares it with us in his Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, he says this, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, you're at church, in this case, uh, again, it's kind of their way of worshiping and praising, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Don't keep worshiping leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. There's very something very interesting here. Jesus doesn't use this illustration by accident. What he's telling us is this, that when things aren't right with the people around you, in a very real way, things are not right with God. When there's conflict with people around you that you're a part of, God is not pleased with that. And there also is in that way a sin conflict that we have with God. We need to figure out it out. And what's the goal? It's in the last part. People see it. It's not to win. It's to be reconciled. The goal in your argument, conflict, disagreement, at the end of the day, Jesus says, should be that the relationship is restored to the status it was before the argument happened. Our next villain, it's more important to be reconciled than it is to be right. And what would happen in our closest relationships if we remembered that? Now, there are so many different things that cause conflict between people. Some of it is as small as, you know, which way you put the toilet paper on the roll. And there's other things that are way, way bigger than that. And I realize that when speaking to a group this large. So there's some caveats that I want to share with you about this whole reconciliation thing. First one is this, that depending on the other person, um, reconciliation may not be possible. Remember, you can only control your heart and your forgiveness, you can't make the other person want to be reconciled. So you might have a relationship that isn't totally reconciled, but there's nothing you can do at the moment because your heart's in the right place and theirs is not. Number two, depending on the hurt, reconciliation may mean that distance remains. Like I said, some of the things that cause conflict between people are big like abuse or unfaithfulness, um, even being in situations that are literally unsafe for you to be in. And you might be reconciled in your heart and be in the right place and recognize that in this case, the relationship is not going to exactly be the same because there needs to be distance for safety reasons. And that makes sense. Last thing is, depending on the issue, reconciliation may not mean perfect agreement. I think this happens... This is the kind of argument that happens most in marriages because we get crabby with each other. And so we start arguing about stupid things like toilet paper and the color of walls and what furniture and, you know, what type of food you buy and all these sorts of things. It's like, you know, guys, tip. Let your wife pick the color of the walls if she wants to. Who cares, okay? My point is a lot of this has to do With when we love people, we recognize we may not be on the very same page with everything. And that's okay. I don't need my way all the time. Let's go back to James as we close it out with this verse. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. Get rid of sin. Do the best you can to to sort of separate yourself from sinful activities, and sinful actions, and humbly, because a lot of humility is going to be needed if we're going to be able to navigate disagreement without San Diego Bay-type fireworks, okay? And humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. And this is the most important part of this entire thing because what James does at the end is he refers us back to the word planted in you. That word being the central message of the Bible, which is what? Let me tell you. It's going to sound familiar. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. I know that it doesn't always seem to be fair to have to be quick to listen and slow to speak because you're right and you could prove it. But I want you to think about Jesus for a moment. Think of if Jesus' only point to coming to earth was to let people know that he was right. Is he right? Like, all of the time. And so what would have happened is Jesus would have been born in Bethlehem, he would have grown up, he would have started his ministry, then he would start to meet people. He'd been like, Peter, dude, you got anger issues. I can't trust you to talk ever because you got some stuff going on inside you, okay? And Matthew, how could you be a tax collector? You are so greedy. All you care about is money in this life. And John, you're always asking to sit at my left or sit at my right. Like, who cares? You're so conceited and selfish. And Martha, goodness gracious, you're a busybody. I come to your house for dinner and all you care about is what the house looks like. Who cares? I'm Jesus. I'm the Son of God. And Pharisees, where do I even start with all of you? Okay? It's going to take a while. We could be here all day. And after he pointed out, that he was right and everyone was wrong with the verbal fireworks being shot at people, and he was right. He just ascended into heaven and the world would go to hell. <laughs> because we are wrong and he is right. But Paul points out that Jesus came to reconcile us. Which is harder. It takes love, it takes patience, it takes work. And that's what Jesus did. And he stayed here with the sinful people that he knew all about their baggage and sin, and he did the hard work of loving them in spite of it spending three years with 12 guys, one of them ultimately betraying him, and then dying on the cross because his goal was not to be right. His goal was for you to be reconciled. So we sit here today with a restored relationship that our relationship with God is the same as before there was even sin, because our sins have been forgiven. I know it's easier to let the flamethrower go and to show how you're right, because you probably are, but God doesn't care. He wants you to be reconciled, and he wants you to work through the hard work of loving, even in the midst of disagreement and hardship probably the best thing we could do in order to be ready to do that is not to know like three steps or anything like that. It's to make sure that our own hearts are right. You see, Jesus points out in Luke chapter six, he points out that the mouth speaks that which the heart is full of. So those of us, it kind of goes back to hurt people, hurt people. Those of us who have anger in our hearts, that's the people whom the anger comes out of our mouths or the sarcasm in our hearts, it comes out of our mouths. It's only a window into our hearts. So if we change our hearts through repentance and being in the word and asking the Lord to help us change our hearts, guess what also changes? Your words begin to change too. So, My guess is you're probably gonna have a conflict before we see you again next week. Here's what I want you to do. Last villain, I want you to view your next conflict as an opportunity. I don't want you to have conflict, but I'm pretty sure you will. I want you to view it as an opportunity for three things. Number one, personal growth. You know, I don't know how many of my issues that I need to work through would not have been uncovered if I didn't live with someone like Carrie who is so close to me. And at the end of the day, as much as it's hard to admit, that's a good thing. Because only when things are uncovered can I now, with God's help, change them. So it's an opportunity for personal growth. It's an opportunity to, pri- to reflect grace. Like, we are mere conduits of what Christ has given and done to us as now we can be sort of um, catalyst for reconciliation with other people as we reflect that grace. And finally, it's an opportunity to prioritize relationships. The best way you can show your spouse, your friend, your coworker, your teammate that you care about them or that you love them is by being gentle with them. Be quick to listen and slow to speak, to have the goal of fixing the relationship rather than just proving that you This is a lot to think, a lot to digest. I want you to realize between your nose and your neck is this powerful tool that can be used to give death or life. And by God's grace, even when fireworks seem to be inevitable, that we press pause and that we allow something else to come out. Let's pray.